0: Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host today. But only kind of for the intro because the main body of the podcast today is going to be our guest hosts, George Vlad and Dan Hendricks. And they're going to talk about their amazing trip to South Africa to do a field recording workshop and their experiences there and the sounds they got and it's a really cool story. So stay tuned to hear them. But first I'll uh, talk to you about how it came to be. George Vlad is a very active member of the sound community online and uh, I follow him on Twitter and he was posting about how he was about to go to South Africa for this Sonic Mobella. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, workshop where you go to uh, the very rural northern part of South Africa. And uh, record whatever you want in this workshop. So he was going. So I sent him a note through Twitter and said, hey, if you're doing this and you want to do a story for the podcast, I think our listeners would really like that. So he and Dan Hendricks went down there, take part in the workshop. And while they were there, they also made a really cool sound effects library that you can now buy. So this is kind of the story of their adventure to South Africa to record a lot of those sounds. And Uh, You get to hear a lot of samples of the stuff they recorded, as well as kind of the background and the adventuresome side of it all. But speaking of social media, as I mentioned, I contacted George through Twitter. I was wondering if I could ask you guys to do us a favor. If you are on Twitter, please follow the podcast on Twitter. And if you're on Facebook, we have a Facebook page. Please uh, go to that and like it so that it can help us in two ways. One, it can uh, help us let you know when new episodes are out and anything else that we're up to. But also it helps us because when we ask people if they want to take part in an interview with us, sometimes they go to our Twitter page or our Facebook page to see how many followers we have and kind of judge if it's worth their time. And we have a weird, uh, unique situation where we have way more downloads than followers on Twitter or members of our Facebook page. So it would really help us if you would go and uh, follow us on Twitter, like our page on Facebook, just to get those numbers up a bit. It would be really awesome because uh, we know you guys are out there because you're downloading and listening to the show but I guess maybe a lot of you aren't on Twitter, but any of you that are, it would be really appreciated if you could just follow us on Twitter and the same with the Facebook page. I can promise you we're not sending out posts every five seconds or anything. We basically put out a post when a new episode comes out. And uh, other than that, we answer some questions that people post to us every once in a while. But we will not inundate your timelines with uh, tone benders related stuff. It will be like a once or twice a month thing. So... Please, if you could do that for us, we would really appreciate it. So now I'm going to throw it to George and Dan, and uh, they're going to tell us all about what it's like to go recording in South Africa. Take it away, boys.
1: I'm George Vlad. I'm a sound recordist, sound designer and composer, working mainly on games. And I'm here with Dan Hendricks.
2: Yeah, so hi, my name is Dan. I'm also a sound designer and um, sound recordist, mostly working in games and in terms of sound recording, mostly focused on wildlife and nature sounds.
1: Good to have you here, Dan. We're here to talk about a trip we went on last year. Uh, It was uh, a workshop slash residency for sound artists, sound recordists some designers organized by Francisco Lopez and Barbara Ellison. The trip took place in uh, in the northern part of South Africa on the border with Botswana. It was called uh, Sonic Mabolela, and it is uh, an annual thing, so it's on again for this year as well. We'd like to share our uh, opinions, our impressions from the trip and uh, some, some of the recordings we captured while we were there. That's
2: right. <laughs>
1: for me, it was the first time I was traveling outside of Europe, and it was simply amazing. I think that that's the best word to describe it. It was amazing. It was completely different from what I was used to hearing. It was interesting because of all the animal and bird species and insects that I encountered.
2: How was it for you? So for me, um, it wasn't the first time that I went down to Southern Africa. I'd been there before uh, in the previous year, in 2015, to do like four months of traveling and sound recording. And I mean, it sounds cheesy, but I'd literally fallen in love with, well, the African bush, I guess, uh, the first time I was there. So I just really wanted to go back. And Sonic mabalela was like a perfect opportunity because they actually rent out a game reserve in the north of south africa and they rented out for two weeks there's no tourists uh, or other people present during that time so for two weeks you have access to quite a large amount of uh, space purely for the context of uh, sound recording which is kind of like a dream really so uh, that was yeah so that was for me that was the main reason why i wanted to um take part in Sonic Mabalela. and also because the way the workshop is described it's not really that focused on um, you know the technical aspects of, of sound recording. I guess the context is more about sound art and how you uh, would use field recordings in maybe the context of installations or even music compositions. So that to me was kind of like a new like a new approach to field recording. So that was the second reason why I really wanted to uh, take part.
1: Right. That was definitely one of the reasons I joined as well. For me, it was first and foremost an introduction to Africa. When I previously thought about going to Africa, I found it a bit daunting because obviously there's all the big game, all the animals uh, that you need to uh, be wary about. and There's insects. There's all kinds of dangers. Just landing into Johannesburg and uh, finding my way around there would be a bit more dangerous than what I'm used to while uh, living my life here in, in the UK. So this provided an excellent opportunity to get introduced to Africa. But as you said, the approach that uh, Francisco and Barbara take is not necessarily a really technical one. They they don't focus on gear. Mm-hmm. And this is both a good thing and a bad thing, in my opinion. Obviously, I'm I'm a gearhead. I like to spend days, weeks, months just researching gear. But while doing this, it's really easy to lose focus of what you actually want to do. You want to go and record sounds. In the end, it's not the tools that matter. It's what what you record. It's uh, listening. It's uh, all these processes that kind of get lost when you're focused on gear exclusively or almost exclusively. So this presented an excellent opportunity to move away from uh, from this approach and Listen more, so uh
2: yeah, I understand perfectly what you mean, and I agree on that subject, actually, one of the things that didn't make me hesitate a little bit before signing up to this workshop is actually because you know you mentioned earlier all the um, dangerous uh, wildlife uh, that you have in Africa right, uh, and there isn't actually that much of that in this game reserve, you know, the mamola estate, there are a lot of mammals there's lots of types of antelope and so on but, you know, there's no elephants, there's no lions there are a few uh, carnivores but they are very few and far between So for me, that was one of the things that made me kind of hesitate, as I mentioned before, because I do love, especially elephants, uh, they're so extremely vocal, they have uh, such a wide range of sounds that they produce, which is what I was exposed to, you know, the previous time when I went to Southern Africa. The plus side of not having elephants and buffalo around and so on, uh, you know, the sort of animals that could likely do something to you if you happen to be walking around in the bush. Right. Right. You know, because they weren't there, it actually made the experience of being at Sonic Mamelela much more free as it would have usually been because we could fairly safely just walk around with our microphones and so on. Indeed. And this is something that I had previously not experienced at all. I was always sort of confined to my car uh, or my tent and just walking around with microphones and just recording what you hear that was something completely new and i think that is a bit of a blessing in disguise in in that sense in particular also because um the time of the year when they organize this workshop is the beginning of summer in the southern hemisphere so that means that you have lots lots and lots of really active bird life That's what mostly attracted me to come down because I knew that at that time of the year I would hear dawn choruses as I'd not experienced them before because the previous time I was there it was May-April time and that is kind of like the beginning of winter. That's also a very nice period but in terms of bird life this was a really different kind of experience, really, really full soundscapes of the bird song.
1: When I read that there weren't any big game on the reserve I thought that maybe there wouldn't be that much stuff to record. I was even a bit disappointed, Hmm. but as soon as we got there and as soon as I heard the first dawn chorus that we woke up at 4am to go out and record, I immediately lost any of the preconceptions and any of the ideas that I had. So this was indeed a blessing to disguise. We didn't Mm -hmm. get to record elephants and buffalo and bigger creatures, but we got to places that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Mm -hmm. One interesting aspect of traveling to such a remote place is preparing for it. For me, this took a couple of months to research the place, to gather my gear and to decide what to take with me and what not to. To get all the, the immunizations from a travel doctor,
2: what was the process for you? It was kind of straightforward, to be honest. I mean, in terms of getting all the uh, immunizations, I had already done that the previous year. Right. So I didn't have to do that again. In terms of getting my gear, I didn't really need to buy anything new for this experience. You know, the only thing for me was to have bags big enough to bring everything, which which is pretty much what it boiled down to, because I knew I, I was going to try and do many different kinds of recordings. So I just literally brought everything that I have, almost. As you uh, do. All, yeah. <laughs> so that was the main thing, you know. Uh, but then I've done that quite a few times already anyway, just sort of drag all these bags around. So it wasn't that hard for me to get ready for it. It was just get my flights and uh, and go.
0: Right.
1: So yeah. what was your like your main rig for the trip?
2: I had what I would consider two main rigs because my main focus was to record ambiences. So I brought a surround rig which is um, a double mid-side sennheiser setup and i also brought a diy sas enclosure which is i mean a sas is basically like a way of recording binaural and for that, I, I used two um, Sennheiser 8020s. So those two were, were my main ambient rigs. And then I had a whole bunch of mics for other things. You know, I had like a Telinga to do close-up bird song. And uh, I had some contact mics and some hydrophones. And some miniature omnis just for various experiments.
1: Right. For me, it was uh, the focus was ambience as well. I wasn't so sure I could get close to any creatures, any animals or birds. So... After attending a couple of the WildEye courses with Chris Watson and uh, Chris lent me one of his rigs, the, the DMS rig, I completely fell in love with it. I loved its sound. I loved the recording. So I decided to get it. You a, mean
2: the, sorry, you mean the double mid-side? Yes, rig of that exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: I, I decided I wanted to, to do that as well. So I got a, mm-hmm. an MKH-30. I already had a pair of MKH-8040s mm-hmm. and then got the Sinella blimp which was uh, yeah. custom-made for the double MS rig. I didn't get to test it properly before. I just made sure it worked, <laughs> but it was fine in the end. And uh, as soon as mm-hmm. I got there, I got to test it thoroughly for two weeks. We released a library with our recordings and they're just so immersive. So it's both Come on in my uh, studio setup here and on consumer level 5.1 setup in my living room, and it just mm-hmm. sounds so immersive. It's yeah. excellent, and you wouldn't yeah. expect it because it isn't proper surround recording. But at the same time, it's really convenient. It's easy to carry around. It's easy to to operate. It's easy to record and uh, to derive surround recordings from. And it's an excellent middle ground between a small recording setup and recording surround.
2: Yeah, it would have been uh, quite a hassle to bring five discrete microphones and all the time uh, set those up. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah, so double mid side is a very convenient way of recording surround. And to me, I mean, it it sounds like proper surround in that sense. Yeah, it's not five discrete channels that you record. But, you know, when I listen back to it over a surround system, it's extremely convincing. So, yeah, I mean, I'm very pleased uh, with that rig as well. Yeah, me too. It's kind of (laughs) lovely.
1: It is, I have to say, it is. Then we recorded the Toyota Land Cruiser with our DPAs. It, it was quite an interesting experience because I was expecting them to clip. Because they're they're quite uh, high output compared to the 4061s mm-hmm. or the 4062s. Yeah. But they fared quite well. Uh, I was impressed with the, the results. And I wanted to use them for making nests, but I didn't get to do that. Maybe some mm-hmm. other time. Again, a pair of uh, DPA 4060s were, were part of my rig. I had uh, four JRF contact mics, two JRF hydrophones. And my D100, which I always carry with me. And I I recorded everything on my sound devices 633, Mm -hmm. which, uh, yeah, again, proved excellent in the the heat and the the dust. While we were there, I think there was one or two days when it was overcast and it was not as hot as usual, but all the other days they were incredibly dry and hot.
2: Very, very dry, yeah. This is the thing because winter there is basically dry, 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 and uh, this is also why... Most people, when they go on safari, they will go in, say, like, you know, July or something, because that's when that part of Africa is at its driest. So most animals are kind of suffering for finding water. So they will all, you know, they will all go to these water holes where then as a tourist, you can very easily see the animals sort of, you know, congregate around these uh, water holes. And, uh, you you know, you can get nice pictures and all that. Also, because it's so dry in winter, the bush is dry as well, so you don't have many leaves and so on, so you can see much more. But we were there just at the end of winter, kind of at the beginning of summer. It was supposed to rain quite a bit more than it did while we were there. Normally, that time of the year should be marked by quite intense thunderstorms. And... We were always sort of really wary that it might happen maybe tonight or maybe tomorrow. So, um, you know, we always had to sort of faff around to to make sure that our gear was safe if if we were leaving it out for, uh, you know, for a few hours at a time. Quite a few people who took part in the course, they would have, say, like umbrellas to shelter their gear. Right. Myself, I had like a different solution for that. But either way, it never actually really rained. Maybe there was the occasional downpour, but that was about it and i'm sure you can still remember the smells of uh yeah decomposing decomposing carcasses 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 indeed. In. <laughs> there was a lot of dead wildlife around us actually just because the draw had been taking longer than it would have normally so i even remember one of the night trips that we took to another recording location we came across a uh, i think it was a water bug and normally you know this kind of animal would just run away as soon as they even hear the car but this one was just standing there really spaced out just looking at us and it was really strange he, he you know he didn't move and he was he was just looking at us and we just drove by really closely and we didn't really think that much of it and then when we came back a few hours later at the same spot you know he had died right there was, he was literally on his last legs so when you speak of the heat and so on it was definitely hot and definitely dry and yeah you could see it all around you you know the effects of it
1: you're right it was really hot so this was uh, something to take into account while recording i was afraid batteries wouldn't hold as long as mm. they would because in temperature extremes batteries behave not as well as as they should you know i know mm. for sure that in uh, in extreme cold they deplete yeah. really fast and uh, yeah. you have to have a lot of spares but in heat they were fine i didn't notice any difference in performance no. And obviously, since we're talking about here, we can talk about the mics. They fared extremely well in the heat, and yeah. in this regard, it wasn't a problem at all. No, no. I did have to no. suffer, though, because I thought I was used to these kind of temperatures. When I was back in Romania, we used to have like 40 degrees Celsius all the time in summer. The problem was UV rays. I remember going out to leave my equipment out. I was out for 10 minutes at most. And when I got back, my nose and my forehead, they were red. And yep. the skin on my nose started to peel off as soon as I got back in. So mm-hmm. that's when I realized, oh, man, I should have brought some sun cream. And, uh, oh, you didn't bring sun cream? No, I didn't have any sun cream. No. <laughs> Amazingly. But then I, I was covered all the time. I had my, like, a, yeah, yeah. a really large hat and a, a shirt on all the time. So I, I was sheltered yeah, from yeah. the heat, from the, the scorching sun.
2: Yeah, no, I brought uh, liters of sun cream. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because I knew what it was, uh, yeah, I was going to peel like a
1: yeah it's a lesson wow. learned for me one mm-hmm. thing i was really fortunate to so when we were traveling from johannesburg to the reserve we stopped for shopping at a shopping center and i went out and uh, bought some last minute toiletries and uh just bits and bobs and i got some rope just in case i said right just in case when you, you never know when you need some mm-hmm. rope and uh, when we got there we noticed that there were lots of baboons around They're not the most well-behaved of, uh, of animals, so uh, we wanted to make sure they wouldn't tamper with our uh, recording equipment. So mm-hmm. whenever we'd leave out the recorders and the microphones, we would tie them to trees or to shrubs just in case a curious baboon would take an interest in them. Luckily, they didn't have recordings that uh, you can hear the baboon bumping into the microphone and just not even minding it. But uh, we were lucky, I guess, because I've heard recordists and uh, videographers having issues with uh, bad bones or with uh, howler monkeys and other primates. Uh, So we we were definitely lucky in that regard.
2: I was very skeptical because, uh, you know, this was one of the things that I've been asking. Basically, before getting there, I've been emailing Francisco and Barbara about this. Like, hey, so what do you do to protect your gear when out there? Because in my experience from the last trip, this was always a problem. There was even like a period of two months when i was at one game reserve uh, the last time where they loaned me uh, like a very big heavy cage where i could just leave my gear in for sort of overnight recording right Uh, in particular because of you know the baboons and also elephants and uh, hyenas but basically the approach here at mabolella was just well we've been recording here for the last five years and the baboons always leave the gear alone so we think it's fine (laughs) and I was really skeptical about that i thought well surely that that is not safe but i went along with it and yeah i mean i saw it with my own eyes we had a waterhole very close to the main camp where we all stayed and um obviously we used that waterhole quite often for some recording during the afternoon and um you know we regularly see baboons coming to that waterhole while we had microphones set up over there and they completely ignored all this equipment they just didn't care As soon as I saw it with my own eyes, I I sort of relaxed a little bit about it. But yeah, I wouldn't normally trust the baboons. I mean, even a bit of wire would normally not be enough. You know, they would just wreck it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But in this case, uh, in this case, no. So yeah, so that was definitely uh, lucky. Yeah.
1: One other aspect that you touched on is weatherproofing the recorders and uh, the the microphones. As you mentioned, this was the start of the rainy season. So there was always the possibility of rain, like a downpour and this didn't give us enough time to get from where we were to the places where we'd left the recorders out. So uh, I was offered the rainproof Cinella cover for the blimp, but I didn't get it, and I, I wish I had, because I wasn't able to leave my equipment overnight. I only left it once, close to camp. I believe you had this.
2: Yeah, it's the Kelly rain cover, yeah. So that's what I used for my double midside setup. So yeah, I could leave my gear out overnight, no problem, so I did it quite a lot. So basically what this thing does, you know, it keeps your microphones dry. It doesn't actually filter out the impacts of raindrops on the windshield uh, so well. So in that sense, it's more, you know, just a precaution. It's not a really good solution for recording rain very nicely. But yeah, at least that gave me, you know, a peace of mind. So I did record a lot overnight because of that. Also, I use for my recorder bag, I have like a separate bag that goes around it, which is one of those lower pro bags, you know, the camera bags, uh, which has like a,
1: a... Waterproof cover.
2: Yeah, 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 that's right. So everything was always safely sheltered from rain so i was never never too worried about it
1: right before leaving i looked into this and i got myself a few rain covers for backpacks and for other objects so there are different sizes i don't remember the brand now but they were really useful in that there were a couple of days when uh, it actually started raining while we were recording so yeah i was close to my gear i just went there and uh, wrapped the blimp and the recorder bag into this rain cover it's always useful to have this kind of rain protection wherever you go recording. Yeah. Any other strategies that we have to use to adjust to the recording situations?
2: Well, for me, one of the main thing was because I had these two ambient rigs, you know, that I mentioned before, I had the surround one and then the sort of binaural one. I say sort of binaural because it's like an approximation between binaural and normal stereo. It was always about how to make the most of having both at the same time you know right the first few recording trips there i would just place them next to each other and just record the same thing simultaneously later on i would actually start splitting them out more you know i would leave one say by the river and then the other inside the bush and you get two different perspectives right at the same time but uh, otherwise, I was kind of interested and intrigued by how the others approached their recording strategies. They were, I would say, very different from from us. Indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess because we are, you know, the people who work in sort of entertainment, games or that sort of thing, we have a different approach to recording.
1: I remember, I think it was Yvonne, she used to record herself talk, like do a sound walk around. Oh, Yeah. I would never do that i understand the purpose of a sound walk but as you do i see sound as a tool i mean i need these sounds in my work my day-to-day work so i can't really use a sound walk in a, in a video game i work on right mm-hmm. and you can't either so we would focus on recording the cleanest most pristine ambience that we could while yeah mostly everyone else they were focused on uh, the actual experience they, they would record themselves changing levels on the handheld recorder, this wouldn't bother them, you know, the the interaction with the recorder. They wouldn't Mm. insist on taking themselves out of the recording. No, no. And if at first I thought this was peculiar, then after discussing these aspects with Francisco and with everyone else, I sort of understood where they came from. It's not, as long as you don't need a cleanest sound and you don't need to, to turn it into something usable commercially... You can do whatever right there's no hard and fast rules to it it's just it's Mm -hmm. it's recording it's sound
2: yeah i guess when i'm recording ambiences what i'm actually really doing is i'm trying to get some kind of illusion of something that doesn't even really exist anymore so when i hear an airplane or a car in the distance i know already that you know either i'm going to delete that part or i'm going to sort of edit out the car if i can and even though we were here fairly remote we would still have you know the occasional car driving in the background you know like some land cruiser somewhere or or also campaigns. yeah yeah Not nearly as often as, say, like near London or something, but, but still, you know, every now and then. So it's those kind of things that, you know, there is this sort of discussion about what is a true, you know, representation, I guess, of a space. Should you include these kind of sounds? Well, for me personally, you know, that breaks the spell for me. So I'm always looking for that illusion of a place that is not infested, so to speak, by man-made sounds.
1: That's the same for me, exactly the same. I had much more trouble doing that while I was recording ambiences in Scotland. There's much more planes going around there. There's more yeah. traffic. There's more man-made noise. So, uh, yeah, I tried to create the illusion that there's no people, there's no man doing all yeah. kinds of stuff to the environment. I'm not sure uh, how ethical that is. For me, for my purpose, that's fine, but uh, it's not a correct representation of the environment
2: no well it's ultimately it's like a creative decision really it's the same as when you suddenly hear like a rooster uh, right <laughs> you know, it's kind of far away yeah uh, it, you know it's an animal but yeah because there were a few spots where, where we were recording in the morning and we would hear a rooster somewhere I remember in particular you being super annoyed with that. Like, I, Oh, this this freaking rooster! And you know, for me, that's also something that I would you know edit out later on, because uh, even though it's an animal calling, it's one that you you know you associate, associate with uh, farmers and human activity. So yeah, indeed.
1: And it sounded out of <laughs> place. It was the last thing I would expect to hear in the, the South African savannah. <laughs> I decided not to record in that place anymore, even if there was a, a nest of white-backed vultures close by. I took my rig and I went. As far away as i could from that spot just because of the rooster
2: yeah for me it's different because i don't mind removing that stuff i don't mind it if i just listen to it but for a library in this context i don't want it so i have got rid of the rooster
1: this is an excellent segue to our next subject which is the actual library that we put together mm-hmm. for me as i said when i found out that there wouldn't be any big game on the reason i thought to myself this drastically reduces the the scope of our library i wasn't even mm-hmm. sure I, I wanted to do a library i was just a bit disappointed now that i think about it but as soon as i got there i just i listened to everything i took everything in and i decided right even if there was no big mammals around there was too much of uh, species and individual diversity that it was safe to start focusing on recording for a library
2: yeah of course i mean uh when people first think of africa it's always like oh lions and so on and and of course yeah and of course of course i love these sounds and these animals myself but you know the bird song itself as well is also very very um unique and very very typical for that place and also for that time of year I guess maybe I was less disappointed about that because I knew it was going to be like that in a sense. And I have already recorded some of the more typical African wildlife sounds. Yeah. But in this case, yeah, I kind of knew that we would get a lot of really, really beautiful uh, bird song. And um, yeah, I was not disappointed in that sense. Yeah, that
1: yeah. That, mm. uh, far from disappointed. The sheer diversity and the different calls. I was fascinated by the rhythmic calls of some of the birds, for example, mm-hmm. the crested the barbet. Or the the rufous-cheeked nightjar. Mm -hmm. Or even some of the frogs. And then the cicadas, they were so loud. I didn't expect cicadas to be as loud as they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were deafening. I have a couple of recordings that are completely ruined by cicadas. I left the gear out recording tied to a bush and then some cicada just decided they wanted to call really loudly from the same bush.
2: Yeah, I have that a few times as well. This is also the interesting thing when you're recording in surround and then you might have like a cicada, say, in the left surround channel, super loud, whereas what you would maybe consider your subject of interest maybe is nicely in the center. So then when you listen back to it over surround, you sometimes have this feeling that you can't really balance it out nicely because... That's just how things sound, right? (laughs) That's been my experience
1: as well. I guess you can't really mix reality or balance out reality. Loudness varied quite a lot. There was extreme dynamic rage in the bush, especially on the riverbed. These huge valleys where the river would flow during the rainy season. And there was no water in them. But the acoustics of the place were just amazing. And you'd hear geese or uh, ibises flying by. Imagine you're there at night. It's pitch dark. You're fumbling around with your gear and trying to avoid snakes, trying to avoid scorpions, maybe hippos or crocodiles. Your last concern is to listen to how beautiful it sounds, and then you just you just stop in place and start to take it in. Actually, you know, it's it's just amazing. November twenty fourth, four thirty a.m. It I thoroughly enjoyed being there, and I tried to reconstruct some of that experience with recordings and with how uh, we
2: presented it in the library. It sounds quite convincing in surround. Obviously, it's not the same as being there, but yeah, right, yeah, no, yeah. I think actually for me that was different. Uh, I had many um, really, really early morning recording sessions that we were there, where I was just sitting down and really relaxing and just listening to uh, what was around us. I mean, I would check around me if maybe there wasn't a scorpion, but other than that, it was very relaxing most of the time, yeah.
1: Yeah, one other thing in the same same vein. For me, it was the baboons. If at first I thought about them as kind of cute, you know, they're they're small monkeys. And then reading up on them, it's like they have these complex social structures. They have leaders with henchmen and they're always up to no good. And when you'd hear them, I remember specifically a recording I was I think it was afternoon and I, I went further than everyone else to leave out the recorder and as I was slating my recording, mm-hmm. I started hearing the baboons quite close ah! Ah! This is Mapolena at Limpopo River eagle's nest November 21st. Having afternoon. hear that more. Yeah, there was the element of uh, sort of uh, ancestral fear in there, you know, some well, element of it.
2: I mean, it's definitely an environment where you wanna always be a little bit on guard. You know, same right. as uh, same as you know the few areas where there was sort of deep enough water in the river you would have to be certain that you wouldn't get too close to the river because there were some really, really big crocodiles in there. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be a very good spot for some hydrophone recording. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I mean, right. in that sense, you, you, yeah, you have to stay on guard. And for me, it was especially at night because I'm, yeah, I don't like scorpions too much. So especially at night when you would sometimes uh, see them sort of coming out. Or in the yeah. shower room. Yeah, oh, I, yeah, yeah. I
1: remember when I <laughs> when I found one. I was going to take a shower at 1 a.m. and I found one just uh, under the laundry basket. Yeah. And it, it seemed dead at first, but I, then I saw it start moving. And it was just as soon as it saw me, it was trying to attack me. It was a bit scary, I have to admit. And uh, it had
2: a very aggressive. Um, so yeah, those kind of creatures, I would I would be very wary of all the time. Yeah,
1: yeah. and that added an element of adventure to everything. It really felt. It's kind of cheesy, you know, you, you feel more alive when you're actually in, in kind of danger. But uh, that was exactly the case for me. Hmm. When I was there, I had to be on my toes all the time. Some of the people there, they would just lie on a rock, you know, and uh, meditate. I would never have done that, and just because of uh, all the snakes and scorpions and uh, wind scorpions and all the centipedes and all the other bugs that were around. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, in the end, it really felt like an adventure. Hmm. And to complement All the field recording that we did, there were these extensive chats that we've had, which were uh, relative to the residency part. We'd pick a a theme and we'd uh, just dissect it. We'd talk about why sound artists aren't considered composers or uh, comparisons between photography and sound recording. I mean, similar stages that they each went through. Photography some hundred years ago, even more than that, and sound recording just about now. That was a very interesting aspect to it. And uh, I learned a lot just from discussing things with all the people that were there. I remember a few tidbits from our discussions. One of these was creating tape loops, cassette tape loops, and then burying them under sand or leaving them out in the sun to warp. Mm. And then after recovering them, playing them back and recording what's left of uh, the recording on the tape.
2: Yeah, who did that again? Uh, that was one of the I think that was Alex. The girls. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: She talked about the technique of leaving uh, like lav mics into bottles and then recording a, a soundscape in a room. I would definitely find room for that in my day-to-day work. I remember these ideas clearly. They can be used for uh, sound art and composition and editing sound, doing all that kind of stuff. But they can also be used in sound design. That was definitely a boon, being there for the discussions and for learning new approaches new techniques how did this impact your experience of the trip
2: so i found the discussions they would sometimes go a little bit over my head i was really trying to understand in particular where francisco was coming from because he spoke from years of background working as an independent sound artist and he would talk about his uh, struggles that he would would have to be either recognized for the sort of work that he did. Like, for instance, you know, the work that he does is, you know, a composition, it's music. But because it's um, music made out of field recordings, for instance, it's not always seen as music by other people. It's maybe not accepted as such. Other things that he would talk about was when he would um, get commissioned for some work like for instance uh to you know produce a piece of sound art for for a city right uh, then maybe the people who would hold the purse they would expect him to maybe record the most famous church in that city but to him that was more like well maybe maybe I'll do that but just because it's it's the famous church doesn't mean that you know from a sonic point of view this is actually going to be interesting so I felt like. There's quite a lot of frustration maybe in that field where you sometimes have to make promises to the money people or or you have to sort of talk around things to, to be able to do the things in the way that you want to do them without going by someone else's expectations. So all of these aspects that were really discussed at length, to me, uh, were very new because it's not the sort of thing that I struggle with in my work as a, let's say a commercial sound designer right right so i found that very interesting and also very you know like i said earlier like i was a little bit out of my depth in that sense where i connected maybe like a little bit better with it was with the so-called um listening concerts that were held which is one aspect. Right. of uh, yeah that that was one one interesting aspect i thought of this workshop is where We would go out into the bush every now and then as a group, and we would bring some chairs. We wouldn't bring any microphones. We wouldn't bring any recorders. And we would just sit down for a minimum of an hour and not talk and not do anything. We'd just sit down and listen. me this was much more challenging than i thought it would have been because i felt like when i'm listening in that kind of context i'm really analyzing you know i'm really sitting like oh here's this bird or oh i would just think about all the sounds that i'm hearing and i would analyze maybe the sort of acoustics or i would think about oh isn't it interesting how this call just started out of nowhere and you know i would all the time be sort of processing and i felt like maybe this is the sort of next step that I'm currently not able sort of to do is to listen without all this analyzing because it was either that or or I would just be thinking about something completely different. And of course, my ears are still working. I'm still listening, but I didn't feel any more like sort of meaningful listening, you know? So it was either super analytical, as I do, or it was just thinking about something else. And these kind of listening sessions made me really aware of that. Like, ah, okay, I'm actually... Extremely analytical when I'm listening, and perhaps there is something more there that i can that I can learn.
1: This is my experience as well. when I first heard that Francisco wanted us to do that. I mean I thought, right, what can I do for one whole hour there? Yeah, yeah. but you know, I noticed this about myself when I'm out recording I know there's a record button pressed. It's like a part of my brain just turns off. I know that everything that I can hear. It's being recorded, so I'm not that—not sure "analytical" is the, the right word, but I, I'm not taking it in properly. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I'm aware that this sound is not preserved, this is something that I, I can't go back and listen to again. It's like I can—I am listening to, with, with my entire brain. I'm listening more intently, and this—this mm-hmm. this was the best way for me to actually listen to the environment because otherwise I would focus on recording, on getting the best recordings. It was like an immense fear of missing out. I would leave my recorder, my gear in one place and then be in another place and find something even more interesting and wonder if maybe I should have got my recorder with me or my microphones. But this way, with no recorder working, I would just focus on listening. And as you said, I would be analytical all the time. I'd try to identify species and uh, I wouldn't think of unrelated things. But I think it was close to what Francisco intended us to do. He wanted us to actually... Not think of it in terms of uh, analysis. You want us to take it in, to just enjoy it. Yeah. But this is as close as I could get to it. I couldn't do more. It's like meditation. I can never sit for half an hour, just to do nothing and think about nothing.
2: I think that's the sort of skill that you can learn. And when he was talking about it, it sounded like um, it was on quite a different Sort of level as as what I was doing. I'm not quite sure because I can't really relate to it. I don't know how he listens, for instance. But he was speaking about something that he called deep listening, and right. I always felt like, well, what I'm doing is I'm sort of listening on the surface. I mean, I'm definitely taking it all in, and I'm and I'm, but I'm analyzing. You know what I mean?
1: Anyway, it was a very interesting opportunity to mm. to actually listen to the sounds of the environment we were in, and we got to do this for I mean five, six times, possibly even more. And it yeah, was a few times. it was in different places all the time. For me, it enhanced the experience of being there. I'm not sure if this was Francisco's intention, but for me, it just it it made the trip even more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And it also helped me with working on the library again. I could relate to all these events happening, and while selecting the the bits from my recordings, I would instantly think of the moment I was there and how I felt when I was there. There's moments when there's a whole cacophony of sounds happening at the same time. Loads of individuals and species, but they kind of make sense for me at least after listening to it while being there. They kind of make sense now. I can identify like layers within layers and yeah. individuals and uh, place them in the, the, the surround field. For me, it made my work easier when I got back and uh, started working on the library, mm-hmm. which took three months, even more than three months, I guess. I needed a whole month just to catalog all my recordings and listen back to them and uh, identify mm-hmm. the best parts.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of work.
1: It was indeed, but it's really rewarding when you can finally say, right, this is done.
2: One final aspect of that residency or the workshop was, of course, that everybody was supposed to make some work, uh, you know, like a piece of work by the end of the workshop, and then it would all be, you know, presented to each other on the final day. And you know, we were there with a group of independent musicians, composers, artists, and. Um, Actually, some of them were there already uh, with funding for a piece. Like, for instance, one of the girls, she was working on a project related to rivers. And because there's, of course, a river there, you know, she was, uh, I think, uh, you know, like a lot of the time while she was there, she was thinking about her project and maybe already thinking also then about this piece of work that she might be able to present. Yeah, Bridget the...
1: was actually working on a piece related to uh, the Thames River.
2: Yeah, yeah. If I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Yeah but for me personally it was more like well i don't know i I don't know if i'm gonna gonna produce any work i just play like a recording that i that i really enjoyed you know Uh, that was actually my plan right but through being there and uh, i guess getting inspired i did eventually uh, make something which is something i've never really tried before is to just make music out of your few recordings was in that sense just an experiment but something that i'm quite happy with in terms of that it's given me the feeling that there's something more that i can do with my recordings rather than just have them as maybe library material or sound design material so for me this was quite a a nice sort of outcome of that workshop where where it was just sort of encouraged you know to try something different so yeah i mean making music with field recordings it, it sounds a little bit obscure maybe to some uh, it's not something that i've done much before but um i think i'll try it more
1: yeah me neither i hadn't done this previously and if at first i was quite excited about it i discovered soon enough that it was quite difficult to actually to work while being there I, I always as i said before i had this fear of missing out so i prefer to be out recording than being there and working on on my laptop with my headphones on. But uh, I managed to find like a, a compromise between the two. I would go out and leave my recording and come back to the house and try and use my recordings as musical elements. it was a bit underwhelming it's not the best piece that I've ever done but it was an interesting change and as you said it offers me something else to do with my recordings besides having them there in my collection and using them as, uh, as sound design material mm-hmm. and I feel like we've uh, rambled about this trip enough yep. I have to say I'm really thankful to Tim and Renee for offering us this opportunity yeah likewise Yeah. any last words for the listeners <laughs> uh,
2: I can't think of anything right now
1: okay that's fine <laughs> have fun yeah have fun recording <laughs> yeah, yeah thanks yeah. again
2: all right bye bye thanks for listening to tone Vendors. you can find us on itunes soundcloud and stitcher if you listen on itunes or stitcher please write us a review while you're there to support the show, go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at, info at ToneBendersPodcast.com.